So like I said, this is uh, week two, uh, looking at the Holy Spirit, and we're going to delve into kind of one particular aspect that's really important. Um, a number of years ago, there was a book that came out called The Forgotten God, written by Francis Chan. And if you want to read a good book about the Holy Spirit, I highly recommend it. It's a fairly short book. And uh, he calls it The Forgotten God because his contention is, and I agree with him, is that the, the evangelical church, to a certain degree, has forgotten about the Holy Spirit. And it's probably been going on for decades. Um, I've, I've said this before, I, I can probably count on one finger how many sermons I heard my dad preach on the Holy Spirit growing up. We just didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. We didn't, I didn't really know what his function was. I didn't know who he was or what he did. The only time I ever heard him mentioned was in a baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Francis Chan um, wrote a book to address this, and I want to read this quote to you. He says, if I were Satan and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of my main strategies would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. The degree to which this has happened is directly connected to the dissatisfaction most of us feel with and in the church. We understand something very important is missing. The feeling is so strong that some have run away from the church and God's word completely. And I think he's right. I think uh, in many churches today, we talk so little about the role of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We just kind of ignore him. We treat him like the you know, redheaded stepchild of the, the Godhead that people in the church start wondering, I feel like something's missing. I feel like my faith is not as robust as it should be. I feel like I'm, I don't have the joy, the contentment, the purpose that I should have. Where's the abundant life that I've been promised by Jesus Christ? And so they end up vacating the premises. They leave. They, they just walk away. Um, and I think we see this particularly in young people. I, I think a lot of young people who have not understood and been taught about the role of the Holy Spirit in their, Spirit in their lives end up leaving the church because it doesn't work. It's not, I don't feel it. I don't, it's not working for me. And so they give up on it. So this is his take on it, and I, I, I agree with what he's saying. But there's another gentleman that I've quoted multiple times already, A.W. Tozer, and he wrote in a different era. He wrote in the 40s and 50s, and I want to read this kind of extensive quote from him that I think is just as powerful and impactful. He says, we may as well face it. The whole level of spirituality among us is low. He starts out really negative, and then he gets worse. Um, <laughs> He says, we have measured ourselves by ourselves until the incentive to seek higher plateaus and the things of the Spirit is all but gone. Large and influential sections of the world of fundamental Christianity have gone overboard for practices wholly unscriptural, altogether unjustifiable in the light of historic Christian truth, and deeply damaging to the inner life of the individual Christian. So with our kind of... Um, Ignoring of spiritual truths like the role of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming nature of the Holy Spirit, we end up going other places, creating other things, other truths that don't line up with Scripture. Well, he goes on. They, these people who have basically jettisoned the role of the Holy Spirit, have imitated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord, and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Ghost. And again, I think he's right. He's writing in the late 40s, early 50s, and he's basically saying this is what it's like in his decade and when the time in which he's living. And I think it's still true today and maybe even worse today than it was back then. This idea that we 
if we're going to ignore the power given to us by God, made available through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, then we're going to manufacture our own power. We're going to try to find something to make this thing called Christianity work. And, and what happens is we fabricate a synthetic power rather than the real power. It, and the power inevitably comes from who? You and me. We have to manufacture it. God's not giving us another source, you know, hey, there's the Holy Spirit, or you can go over here. You know, we, we may say, well, I've got the Word of God. Well, yes, but without the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is really of no value to you. You may know a whole lot about the Word of God, but without the Spirit of God, you'll never fully understand and be able to apply the Word of God. So leaving out the Holy Spirit is huge. That's why he concludes, he says, the glowworm has taken the place of the bush that burned and scintillating personalities now answer to the fire that fell at Pentecost. The church has become, to a certain degree, a, a worshiper of personality. You know, either the senior pastor or the TV personality, the, the individual who we look to and we elevate and we worship to a certain degree because of their spirituality. And yet we've left out the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is essential. We've talked about this before. But we got to continue to wrestle with what's his role, what's his purpose, why is he there, why did God give him, and why is it that we don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit on a more regular basis in our lives? Um, my hope for you and for me, my prayer for you and me, is that we would begin to experience more of the power of the Spirit each and every day of our lives. And I'm not looking for the sensational, I'm not looking for the... Uh, the highly emotional, I think that's what we're, we gravitate towards. I just want to sense his power and presence in the still small moments of my life. Um, it's not that I don't want to see miraculous things happen, and it's not that I don't want to see his power manifested in incredible, inexplicable ways. I just want to know that he's there every day, every step along the way as I live my life. So the Holy Spirit. We know this. We know he was active in creation. We're just going to kind of blow through these. They're in your notes. He was part of the creation story. He helped create the universe. He is the spirit of life, as we saw last week. He inspired the scriptures. So when you read the scriptures, the reason you need his help is because he's the one who inspired them. And if you want to understand them, you need the Holy Spirit's help to do that. We also know this, that he played a central part in the birth of Jesus. He is the one who help Mary conceive the baby, Jesus. That's a pretty important role. He's not the redheaded stepchild. He's not the, the guy sitting in the back room with nothing to do and no purpose. He's very important. He filled and directed Jesus. We talked about, the, again, this last week that Jesus Christ was filled at his baptism with the Holy Spirit, and he was driven by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Everything he did was because of the power of the Holy Spirit within him. And that's important because it shows that you and I have that same power in us, and we, as Jesus said, can do greater things than he did. But are we going to rely on that Spirit? He's the fulfillment of every promise that Jesus made to the disciples. If I leave, I will send you the comforter, the advocate, the helper. And it's better for you that I do leave because if I don't leave, he can't come. And as hard as that was for the disciples to fathom, it was true and it was proven true at Pentecost when the church began. When they were gathered in that upper room, 
Jesus told them, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for what? Wait from the, for the power from on high. Did they have any clue what that meant? Not in the least. They just knew Jesus said, go and wait. And so they went and they waited. But their waiting was one of fear mixed with anxiety, mixed with anticipation, mixed with uncertainty. They were in this upper room not knowing what was going to happen next because their Savior had died, yes, resurrected, but then left them. And now they're waiting. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them, and it was a game changer. It was a world changer. They were changed from the inside out. They went from being men and women hiding in an upper room, not knowing what was next, to going out into the streets and sharing the gospel, speaking in languages they didn't know, and professing the truth about Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people came to faith in one day. Miracles happen. Incredible things happen because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do is look at three aspects of the role of the Holy Spirit in my life and your life that I think sometimes get confused, and there's one that we're going to camp on. But this first one is we are each baptized by the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. Now, not everybody agrees with this. There are different views on this within evangelical Christianity, and some of these terms get... um, Um, misappropriated, misused, misunderstood. They become synonyms for the other words. I'm going to tell you what we believe as a church, what I happen to believe. We get baptized at the point of salvation. When I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the word there is the same word used of water baptism. It's immersion. I'm immersed into the Holy Spirit. I am in him and he is in me. And it is a one-time deal that takes place at the point of your salvation. And you can go back and look at these verses. But that's important to understand that that I am baptized into the Holy Spirit. I get him. He gets me. It's a one-time event. And it's, it's the beginning of, the start of my sanctification. And really the key there is, is that I am baptized into the Spirit. I have the righteousness of Christ. I now have the power of God so that I can replicate and duplicate and emulate that righteousness in my life. So I am imparted the righteousness of Christ, but I can also live it out. Why? Because I'm baptized into the Spirit. He makes it possible for me to live as Christ lived, to walk as Christ walked, and to live as a new creation. Without the Holy Spirit, that would not be possible. Without his baptism, I would not have the power to make that possible. Jesus Christ would just be a goal, an unachievable goal for me to try to strive towards. But because of the Holy Spirit and his baptism, I can live as Christ lived. And I am now part of this thing called the body of Christ, this family. This is one of the aspects I think that we forget about that is so critical. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. And Ephesians, the entire book of Ephesians is written to the body of Christ as all of Paul's letters were. They're written to the body. They're not written to individuals. They're written to the body of Christ, and they're trying to let the the individual Christians know that you're part of this thing called the family of God. You are now children of God. You're adopted into his family. And what makes that possible is the Holy Spirit. We have all been baptized by the Holy Spirit, into the Holy Spirit, and we've been adopted. We are now part of God's family. And one of the things I think is, is kind of endemic in Christianity today is that we, we live an individualized faith. 
It's my faith. You got your faith. I have my walk. You have your walk. And I'm, I'm not going to worry about you. And you don't need to worry about me. And I do my thing. You do your thing. No, we all do it together. And the truth is, I can't live the Christian life without you, and you can't live the Christian life without me, and my spirituality and my sanctification are directly tied to yours. And we don't like that. I don't want to be tied to your sanctification. But yet, why did God put us in this thing called the body of Christ? Why did he adopt us as his children? Why did he make us one? And why did Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, pray to God the Father, would you make them one as we are one? Would you give them unity? Would you give them a single mindset? It's because we've all been baptized into the same spirit. We're all part of the same family. We're brothers in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. I love what Tony Evans says about this. This is in his uh, systematic theology book. He says, God chose the imagery of baptism to explain the spirit's ministry of taking sinful people, that's us, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and immersing them into the whole, a whole new dynamic of life, an entirely new realm or environment called the body of Christ. See, this, this thing called the body of Christ is huge. It's not just where you go to church. You know, I go to this church and you go to that church and I'm a Presbyterian and you're a Methodist and I'm a Catholic or what, whatever it is you think you are, what you really are is you're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the family of God. It's a new environment. It's a new community. You have new brothers and sisters in Christ. And that should mean something to you. So baptism really speaks of God's possession. He baptizes us into the Holy Spirit and we become part of his family. We're his children and we're now part of this incredible thing. The mystery, as Paul called it, of the church. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. We're all part of the same thing. And it really shouldn't matter where we go to church as much as that we recognize that we're part of the church and we're part of God's family, all because of the baptism of the Spirit. The second one is he indwells us. And we talked a lot about this last week. When you come to faith in Christ, you're not only baptized into the Spirit, you're indwelled by the Spirit. He abides in you and you abide in him. It's a symbiotic relationship. Like the branch and the vine, one can't exist without the other. A vine without branches produces no fruit, but a branch without a vine does, doesn't produce fruit. There's this relationship between the two of us, and this, like the baptism, takes place the minute you place your faith in Christ, you are indwelt with the Spirit of God. How much of the Spirit of God? All of the Spirit of God. You don't get half, you don't get a third, you don't get a portion, you get all of them. And this is really important to understand, guys, because if, if you don't believe that, if you don't think that's true, then you're always going to be thinking you're lacking in something and pursuing more of something you think you lack. But I have every bit of the Holy Spirit I'm ever going to have. Indwelling, again, is a picture of possession. He indwells me. He comes and lives within me. He becomes my advocate, my assistant, my comforter. He's there to guide me, direct me, sometimes convict me, challenge me to push me along on my faith journey. And here's what his presence provides, divine enablement, spiritual understanding. You will never understand the scriptures apart from the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. You won't. Confirmation of your adoption. How do you really know you're a child of God? By the very presence of the Holy Spirit. He's our guarantee, our down payment. The very presence of him guarantees that I truly do belong to God, even when I don't feel like it. 
He's the one who allows me to bear fruit. He gives me guidance, comfort, conviction, and spiritual gifts. Every guy in this room, if you're in Christ, has a, at least a spiritual gift, if not multiple spiritual gifts. You may not have a clue what it is. You should. And we, we offer classes on that, if, how to discover your spiritual gift, and I recommend you do it. But you want to know how to really find out what your spiritual gift is? Just start serving. And others will confirm what your spiritual gift is. You may say, well, I got the gift of teaching. Okay, start teaching. And your audience will tell you if you have the gift of teaching. <laughs> they, they will. They'll either show up or tell you to shut up. You know, you may think you have all kinds of gifts. I have the gift of mercy. No, you don't, your wife tells you. You do not have the gift of mercy. But what's interesting is when people come up and go, you, I think you have the gift of compassion. Really? I didn't know that. I think oftentimes we're practicing our gifts and we don't even know it. It takes others to tell us, which is why we're in the body of Christ. But we all have them and they all come from the Holy Spirit. So we're baptized in the Spirit. We're indwelled by the Spirit. But the one I want to camp on is that we are to be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it's an ongoing event. It's not something that happened once like your baptism or your indwelling, it's to be ongoing. And we know that from the passage we're going to look at, Ephesians 5, verse 18. And it also has to do with control. Now, this is the part that all of us as men don't like. There's not a guy in this room who likes someone else to control you. You don't like it. I don't care how old you are, how smart you are, how gifted you are. You do not like to be under someone else's control. You want to be in control. You want to be the one to run your, your life and your, have your fate in your own hands. But filling has to do with control, the control of the Holy Spirit over your lives. And you are indwelt by the Spirit, fully indwelt by the Spirit, but he's not always in control of your life. How do I know that? Because I know my life. And I know your life. And I know you often live much of your day, much of your life outside the control of the Holy Spirit. He's there. He hasn't gone anywhere. You haven't lost him. He hasn't left you. You just are not allowing him to do his job. You're doing his job for him, which is what we talked about from Galatians 5. You are trying to do good, righteous deeds in the flesh, and they become deeds of the flesh, and they always end in what? Death. They don't produce life. So... It's an ongoing thing. So let's look at Ephesians 5. And we're going to camp on these particular verses. But just to set the context, Ephesians is written to believers. Believers living in, obviously, Ephesus. Ephesus is a pagan city. It's a city that is dominated by paganism. They are in the minority. And these people, the majority of them, have come out of pagan religions and have accepted Christ as their Savior and become part of the body of Christ. They've been baptized in the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit. But Paul is addressing a problem that they're not living filled with the Spirit. And so these particular verses are going to address that issue, but the whole book is addressing how are they to live in the context of a pagan environment. So if you, if you look further in the book, earlier in the book, he talks about in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, 
He says that we should live, be holy and blameless before him. He's telling these people, remember he's writing to Christians, they're living in a pagan culture and he's telling them, you are to live holy and blameless. Well, how? Well, he goes on and tells them. He prays for them that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And he goes on and on throughout the book, trying to tell them how they are to live differently in the context in which they find themselves, which is the context of what? Immorality, sin, decadence, debauchery, surrounded by people who don't believe what they believe, who don't like what they believe, who reject their Messiah, who reject their faith system, and it's, it's a tough place to live. Sounds familiar. Sounds a lot like where we live. So in chapter 5, listen to what he says. Remember, they're, they're believers, and I want you to hear this like you're sitting in the church in Ephesus, somebody standing up reading this letter from Paul, and he says, look carefully then how you walk. Well, okay, okay, yeah, I understand that. Not as unwise, but as wise. Okay, well, I'm not sure how to do that, but okay. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Well, I agree with that. They really are. I'm surrounded by evil. My family members have rejected me. I lost my job because of my faith. All kinds of evil, evil's going on. Then he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How do I do that? What does that look like? Where do I get the will of the Lord? And then he makes this like incredible left turn and he goes, and don't be drunk with wine. I read that and go, Paul, what are you, where are you going with that? Be wise, be careful how you walk. The days are evil. Oh, and don't get drunk with wine. Now, is this because Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, they, they had a drinking problem? Is it a church filled with alcoholics? No. Context is everything when reading the scriptures. And the context of Ephesus is that virtually every pagan religion that they had come out of incorporated alcohol in worship. Now think about that. You'd go to that church, wouldn't you? Not only alcohol, but drunkenness was a major part of worship of their deity because they felt like if I was inebriated, I could be better controlled by the spirit because obviously I'm not in control. And so that's a popular kind of religion. Hey, let's go to church and get drunk. Well, when you have a bunch of people, male and female, coming together and they're all getting drunk to worship, guess what else takes place? Immorality, adultery, sexual perversion. And so in virtually all of these pagan religions, alcohol consumption and sexual immorality had been merged together in the worship of their deities. And so here's Paul saying, hey guys, Remember, you're not who you used to be. You've you got a new identity. You're a new creation. You're to walk carefully. Don't do what you used to do. And he's going to take this weird way of worship, and he's going to compare it to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. It's dissipation. It's unacceptable. It's of no value. Don't do it. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Fascinating con uh, con uh, contrast. He's juxtaposing drunkenness as a form of worship with being filled with a spirit. So what's he talking about? Well, the word in Greek is plerao, and it, it literally means to be filled up. But it's not like if I'm driving down the road and I look at my gas gauge and it has the E lit up, and it tells me I need to go fill up, right? I'm out of gas. I need to go get gas. My tank is unempty, and i got to fill it up. That's not what this word means in the Greek. It has everything to do with 
content, but wholeness, fullness. Not you're empty, fill it up. It's just a constant state of fullness to bring to realization, to completion. So I always think of it and hear it and, oh, I'm empty, I got to fill up. I got a glass that's a third full, I got to get it to a full. No, it's about completion. It's about wholeness. It's about, again, it's going to be about control. And, and this picture of drunkenness is going to be key to understanding that. Here's what he's not saying. Seek what you're missing. So when he says, play ra'o, be filled, he's not saying, hey, you need the filling of the Holy Spirit. You're missing something. We already know we're indwelt. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in me. Every bit of him comes to indwell me. Don't understand it. Don't know how that works, but he comes to dwell in me. So I'm not seeking something I'm missing. My tank is not on spirit empty. That's not what he's saying. And I got to go get some spirit somewhere. I got to go pray for the spirit, ask for the spirit, wait for the spirit. No, I have the spirit. He's also not saying you don't have him at all. You know, in other words, you don't have the spirit. You're saved, but you're missing something. That's not, not the context here. He's also not saying supplement what's present. You have a little bit, but you need more. You need the fullness. You only have a portion of the Spirit, and you now need the fullness of the Spirit. See, God didn't give me a third of the Spirit, and i got to go get the other two-thirds somehow. I got all of them. So then what's he saying? He's not saying, Ken, you don't have enough of my Holy Spirit. You're lacking something. You're spiritual tank is on empty and you need to fill that up somehow. So what's the point? What's he telling them? Again, remember the contrast, drunkenness, intoxication, filling of the spirit. This is all talking about possession and control. Again, we don't like that, but if you want to experience all that God has in store for you, you're going to have to come under the control of and the full possession of he who dwells in you. He's there, but you're not letting him do what he's designed to do and was sent to do and wants to do in your life. So it's about your walk. Remember what he said? Be careful how you walk. That word is peripateo. We looked at it last week. Be careful how you live your life, how you conduct yourself. Everything you do, everything you say, everywhere you go, be careful about your spiritual journey. Well, who helps me on this spiritual journey? The Holy Spirit. Yes, the Word of God, but the Word of God is used by the Holy Spirit to help me in my journey, in my walk, as I live my life. But here's the reality, and you know it's true, and I know it's true. I can choose to refuse to live under the power, the control of, the possession of the Holy Spirit. I do it every day. I read an article this last week of a gentleman who's talking about the filling of the Spirit and the control of the Spirit. And he said, I reached a point in my, my faith walk where I determined that I was going to get up every morning and turn control over to the Holy Spirit. He said, I would, I would literally, before my fit, feet hit the carpet, before I got up and made the coffee, before I turned on my computer, even opened up my Bible, I would turn over control. I would pray to the Holy Spirit and say, I want you to control my life today. I would verbally give him control. Now, some of you are like, well, I don't ever pray to the Holy Spirit. I thought we were supposed to pray to God in the name of Jesus. Well, yeah, you are. But nowhere in the scriptures does it say that's how the only way you can pray. In other words, you can pray to God. You can pray to Jesus. You can also pray to the Holy Spirit. And there's probably some of you who never have. 
And I encourage you to do so because each one of the Trinity have a different role in your, your life. God is your father. Pray to him when you are a child praying to your father. Jesus Christ is your savior. When you're talking about issues of salvation, and pray to him. Pray to him as your brother. Pray to the spirit as your guide, your comforter. Don't be afraid to pray to all three of the Godhead. But this gentleman said that every morning I get up and I say, I want my life to be controlled by you. I'm, I'm turning over control today. I'm, I'm giving you the reins to my life. And I encourage you to do that. I've, I've been trying to do that this week and just say, okay, Lord, before I jump into my life, me living my life according to my will, my way, trying to do God's will my way, I want you to guide my path. And it will make a difference. It will change the way you approach your life. And, and along the way, just to keep giving him back control, when you see yourself grabbing the reins back to go, no, not going there, not going to do it. I'm going to let you live in my life and I'm going to yield to you. But see, this yielding is ongoing. It's every day. It's every moment of every day because you're going to be tempted because of your flesh to take back control. And the, the enemy is going to constantly say, don't you want to do this? And don't you think you know better? And aren't you better adept at doing this than he is? He wants to stifle your life. He wants to hold back the fun. And yet I've got to, as a Christian, keep yielding my control to him. I'm going to let you do it. I'm going to let you drive my life. See, I've got to be willing to let him have control, and I've got to be, I want to live under his direction, by his guidance. I don't know about you, but I've lived long enough to know that when I run my life, I usually end up in the bar ditch. I'm, I'm on the side of the road wondering, how did I get here? How did this happen? How did I screw this up again? Why do I always end up in the same place and it's because I've taken back control. I'm trying to run my life, and yet I've got to yield to him if I want to fully understand what it means to experience his filling, his wholeness in me, his presence in me. Lewis Berry Schaefer, who founded Dallas Seminary, he wrote years ago, to be filled with the Spirit is to have the Spirit fulfilling in us all that God intended him to do when he placed him there. Now stop and just think about that. That's, that's a Simple statement that, that's really profound because why did God put his spirit within you? Obviously, there's a purpose, right? He's there for a reason. He's there to guide you, to, to direct you, to empower you, to enable you to do things you couldn't do before or without him. And yet we've got this power that we never tap into. It's like walking into your house and never turning on the light switches, they're there. The power's there. It's, it's in the lines. It can illuminate your life. It can cook your food. It can cool your home, heat your home, and you just refuse to turn on the light switch. You have a power that's there for a reason. And he says to be filled is not the problem of getting more of the Spirit. It's rather the problem of the Spirit getting more of you. And man, I resonate with that because I know I have the spirit in me. The problem is not more of him. It's me giving away all of me to him. I'm done running my life. I'm done trying to be in control. I want your power to be exhibited in my life. You know, it's interesting that when you look at the disciples that they didn't refuse or shun or push away the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to speak in tongues. 
I don't want to share the gospel. Now, they may have been shocked by it. They may have been overwhelmed by what was going on and hearing their buddies speak in tongues they didn't know and they're speaking in a language they didn't know. And they're all, but not one of them said, no, not, not going to do it. Not going to speak. Can't make me. Don't want to. And there's this idea that we should want the Holy Spirit to do things that we would normally not do, be able to do, be prone to want to do, because when we let him do what he was intended to do by God, incredible things happen. Are they always miraculous? No. Sometimes they're very subtle, but they're of him. They're powerful. They're life-changing. So this idea of being filled is, is continual. It's ongoing. It's not a one-time event. And in Greek, it literally means to be kept being filled. So let's do just a kind of a grammar study. This word in the Greek is in the present passive imperative. And you've already gone to sleep on me. What does that mean? I hated English. But what does that mean? It just simply means this. It's in the present, which means it's ongoing. It's not a past tense. It's not something that has happened or is going to happen. It is happening. It is ongoing, and it's repeated over and over again. It's passive, which means you are the receiver of it, not the pursuer of it. You don't make it happen. You don't fill yourself, and you, guess what, don't have to pray for the filling. You don't have to Get on your knees and say, Holy Spirit, would you fill me? Holy Spirit, would you come upon me? Holy Spirit, would you do this, X, Y, and Z? No, he's already there. He wants to complete you, fill you, flow out of you. You need to just yield. You need to give over control. So it's present, it's passive, and it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Hey, Ken, if you get around to it, if you think about it, if you feel prone to it, would you... Please let the Holy Spirit control your life. I'll think about it, God. But today, I want to be in control. No, it's a command. It's present. It's passive. It's imperative, which means I've got to participate and cooperate with it. My dad used to always refer to the Holy Spirit as the gentleman of the Godhead. He never forces himself on you. He doesn't make you do anything if you are not willing to yield to it. In other words, he doesn't force you. He doesn't um, coerce you. He wants to compel you. He wants to encourage you. But if you're not willing, the Holy Spirit will set back and he'll become that still small voice that gets quieter and quieter as you stifle him in your life. And then you'll wonder where the power is. So you got to desire it and you got to submit to it. How often? Every moment of every day, every step, along the way. As you live your life, always submitting to, Lord, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to teach me? I don't want to do this, but you know what? I'm going to do it. I don't want to share my faith with that person. I don't want to stop watching that TV show. I don't want to love my wife right now. I don't want to pour into my kids. I want to be selfish, but you know what? I'm going to do what you want me to do, not what I want to do. It's ongoing. It's something you do. So he, he takes this thing called the filling that he's trying to get these people in Ephesus to understand. You're baptized. You're indwelt. But you need to be filled every day. And he compares it to drunkenness. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Literally, he's telling them, get drunk on the Spirit. Everything about that just sounds wrong to me. How many of you guys have ever been drunk? Let's be honest. Okay, some of you are honest and the rest of you are liars. Um, 
I spent a great deal of my college years drunk, either drunk or high. I know what drunkenness is. If you've never been drunk, and if you haven't, that's great. You've seen drunk people, right? You've seen people under the influence of alcohol. My wife and I flew to uh, uh, D.C. this last weekend to watch one of my daughters run in the Marine Corps Marathon. And we're in the hotel the, the day after, and I'm, I've gone down to the reception desk to call for our rental car. So I'm standing there waiting, and this, these two couples come in, older couple about our, my age and a younger couple. So I'm assuming husband, wife, daughter, husband, and they're standing at the reception desk waiting for their key to the room. And the wife, the older woman, is obviously drunk, loud, obnoxious, one of those irritating, cackling laughs, and like she wants everybody in the room to hear their conversation. And the more she talked, the more I couldn't stand her. You know, I don't know her from Adam, but she was just irritating. And at some point, the guy goes, oh, by the way, at four o'clock, we have free wine. She goes, I love free wine. I can't, what time? Where do we go? I love free wine. I mean, she's so stinking drunk. And then she turns, and she literally falls over her own suitcase and face plants on the carpet. And part of me is like, yes, yes. That woman was under the control of something. What? Alcohol. She was so not in control of her speech. She wasn't in control of her motor skills. She was not in control of anything. And the funny part was that her husband just kept walking. And she's laying on the carpet. And her, you know, her son-in-law, I assume, finally helped her up. And she staggers off. And like she doesn't even register that I just face-planted. She's laughing and just going on her way. And why would he use this? Why would he compare drunkenness to being filled with, controlled by the Holy Spirit? He's got two words here, methusko, to intoxicate, and plerao, to influence. Why this comparison? Paul never did anything just willy-nilly. There's a reason for this. There's a purpose behind it. See, what does alcohol do? It influences your behavior, just like this woman. It affects her speech. She was slurring her words. She made no sense. She was irritating. She was loud. She was obnoxious. It impacts her cognitive ability. She's not thinking clearly. She can't walk. She had lowered inhibitions. Everybody in the room can hear everything she says. Everybody saw her fall. It increases your confidence. You know, when you're drunk, you pick fights with people you would never pick fights with in, when you're sober. You go up to women and you try to make uh, impressions on a woman that you find out later really wasn't that attractive. Because when you're drunk, they're all attractive, right? And you think you're, you're gorgeous, lowers your inhibitions, boosts your confidence, and it alters your personality. Now stop and think about that. Every one of these is exactly what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Think about that. What alcohol does to you, and you willingly let it do it to you because you keep taking it in, this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Influence my behavior, affect my speech, the words that come out of my mouth affect my cognitive abilities, how I think and process life, the things happening to me, around me, lower my inhibitions, giving me a boldness that I didn't have before, increase my confidence, not just in myself, in him, in God, in the faith, and it alters my personality. 
that I might become more like Christ, but all in a positive way. See, Paul's trying to get them to understand, guys, that this thing called the Holy Spirit is to make a difference in the way your life, just like alcohol used to make a difference in your life. It's to change the way you live in a very positive way. So there's three basic meanings to this word plerao. The first one has to do with power, and it's literally the wind blowing the sail of a ship pushing it along, compelling it, propelling it, influencing it, giving it the impetus to go where it needs to go. And I love how he talks in chapter four. He says, we will no longer be immature Christians. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. When you are living in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will live under his control by his impetus with his strength and his motivation, when you're not living under the control of him, you'll be blown by every other wind. You will be blown. You'll just be blown by the wrong thing. You'll be influenced by the wrong thing. The second one is influence. And the picture there is one of yeast permeating dough. It fills the whole thing. It, it permeates everywhere. The Holy Spirit wants to permeate your whole life, saturate you, fill you, complete you, the whole you, not a part of you, not your church life, not your family life, but your work life, your leisure life, every part of you he wants to influence. See, he talks about in chapter three that you may be filled with all the fullness of God in every area of your life. So this word plerao, be filled with, has to do with all of you, that you may be filled with a knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Everything about me he wants to influence, not just part of me. And th third is control. And this is like the picture of a, a glove. If I take a glove and I lay it on the keyboard of a piano and say, play, what's going to happen? Nothing. But if I stick a hand in there that knows how to play the piano, it's a game changer. I, now that glove is able to do what it couldn't do before. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. It's all about authority, control, completeness, sovereignty over your life, controlling everything you do. I love what he says to the Ephesians in chapter 2. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God. And you apply this to the life of Jesus. He was filled with the Spirit. And Mark tells us that he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was motivated, compelled by the Spirit. Luke says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. Guided, led, driven, motivated, impelled, compelled by the Spirit. And then Luke says in chapter 4, he returned in the power of the Spirit. If Jesus needed to live in the power of the Spirit, how much more so do you and I? So the degree of your spirituality is directly tied to the fullness of the Spirit. Is he filling you? Is he living his power out of you? Are you yielding to his fullness? That's why he tells the Galatians, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. He doesn't say, oh, and get some more of the Holy Spirit so you have everything you need. No, he says, let the Holy Spirit you already have guide you, direct you, compel you, fill you. He goes on in verse 25, the same chapter, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. How much of our lives? Every part of our lives. So that what we do, what we say, our behavior, our speech, our conduct, our cognitive thinking, everything about us is controlled and led by the Spirit. And you can't grow spiritually if you're not willing to let that happen. You may learn more scripture. You may serve on more committees. You may volunteer in the church. You may do a lot of really good, godly, righteous-looking things, but you will never truly grow spiritually if you're not willing to be filled by the Spirit because he's the one who gives us the capacity to live the life we've been called to live. 
So I'm going to end you with this. Warren Dowd says, we are always indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're not always filled with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit means God, the Holy Spirit, controls the soul. He do, and he does not control when we sin. When you sin, you grieve him. We're not going to have time to look at that. When you perform human good deeds or, or do evil deeds without his power, you quench him. Remember, we talked about that last week. You can do great things, godly-looking things, but if you don't do them in his power, you are quenching him, and you are hostile toward God. But when we confess our sins, God forgives the sins, he cleanses us, and then the Holy Spirit is in control again. Forgiveness of sins, confession of sin, forgiveness of sins, and the power of the Holy Spirit all go hand in hand. Think about how little you confess sin. And I'm confessing that right now. I do not confess sin enough. I get comfortable with my sin. I justify my sin. I, I say, well, I'm forgiven anyway. All my sins are paid for. Why do I have to confess it? Confession is for me to give up control, admit that I was wrong, give control back to him, receive the forgiveness that's mine in Christ, and then to live back under the control of the Spirit. But if you want to live with unconfessed sin, you're basically saying, I'm not a sinner and I didn't sin. And 1 John tells me if I do that, I'm calling God a liar. So confession is huge if you want to live under the control, the filling of, the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's your three questions for this morning. And I, I encourage you to be as honest as you possibly can be. Of the three definitions or descriptions of the Spirit's filling, power, remember the wind in the sail, influence, yeast permeating dough, and then control, that hand in the glove, which one do you need the most and why right now? Which one is really something you need of him in your life? When you consider Paul's use of drunkenness as a way to describe the filling of the Holy Spirit, how does this help you grasp the all-pervasive nature of that filling? Think about someone who you've seen who is drunk. What, what, did it, what does it do to their life? What does it look like to be totally controlled by drunkenness? And you can even apply this to, to be controlled by fear, to be controlled by greed, to be controlled by um, any of a number of emotions when they squelch all other emotions. When you're controlled by fear, everything else goes away. When you're controlled by alcohol, everything else goes away. How would that apply to being filled with the Spirit, and how would you know that you are? Third, what are some ways we can better cooperate with the Spirit's desire to control our lives? I've given you one. Start your day just turning over control. But as you walk through your day, step by step along the way, just to say, okay, Lord, I'm taking control over. Holy Spirit, would you take this back? I'm my hands are off the wheel. I want you to guide me. I want you to direct me. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this incredible truth that we have him living within us. But Father, he wants to live out of us. He wants that power to not remain stagnant within us, but to flow out of us to all those around us. That Father, he wants to impact the world through us in his power so that God gets the glory. And I pray, Father, that we would learn to submit to him, yield to him, uh, give over control to him, trusting that he knows what's best because he's been placed in my life and in each of our lives by a loving Heavenly Father. So, Father, bless the time around the tables. Bless the discussion. Guide every word that comes out of every mouth that, Father, they would be encouraging, uplifting, challenging. And may, Father, we walk away from here ready and willing to live in the control and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.